A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. I remember running home from school, turning on the TV to the Cubs game, sitting with my dad to watch his heroes. Welcome to the World Series Dreaming Chicago Cubs Dreamcast, not affiliated with the actual Chicago Cubs, but just a bunch of guys who love the local nine and enjoy talking baseball and, of course, the 2016 World Series champion Cubs. Hi, this is Ken. I'm also known as Rice Cube on Twitter. With me is our fearless warrior, Andy, also known as Behind the Ivy. Welcome back to the States, Andy. Hey, I appreciate it. Glad to be back. Uh, actually, you've been back since, like, Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, I got back towards the middle of November, but, you know, holidays and such make time for baseball a little less possible. Right. Well, it's not like you've missed much, except, uh, you know, we can talk about today. Today as uh, Thursday, and some weird stuff just happened with the Cubs, one of the Cubs' chief rivals in the division, the Milwaukee Brewers. So that's definitely something that we could focus on today. I figure we could talk about what the Cubs might do to counter this move if they even care. I'm pretty sure they do, but I don't think they're desperate. And uh, if we have time, we can talk about, like, little miscellaneous things going on in baseball. So how's that for a plan, sir? I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's do it. It works for me. As the spring gave away to summer, past the ivy-colored dreams, toward the days that kept us yearning for tomorrows. Right before I called you, Christian Yelich was just traded from the Marlins to the Brewers, and we know the Marlins have been trying to dump payroll and you know, rebuild and whatnot ever since Derek Jeter's ownership group took over. And then all of a sudden, Lorenzo Cain uh, apparently is going to agree to a five-year deal, which is one of the longest deals of this particular offseason. So, boy, that escalated quickly. Yeah, it really did. Uh, Christian Yelich was somebody I think the Marlins had the plan to hang on to, but got growingly discontentful with the way the Marlins had moved pieces around him by trading Marcelo Zuna to the Cardinals and, of course, basically giving uh, reigning NL MVP Giancarlo Stanton to the Yankees. So Yelich wanted out, and really the big winner there was the Milwaukee Brewers giving up, uh, I think it's Lewis Brinson, mm-hmm. Ison Diaz, and then a couple of pitchers. The big, the big catches for the Marlins there are obviously Brinson and Diaz. Mm-hmm. who have a chance to be pretty good players. Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, interesting how uh, the t- baseball Twitter is reacting to it. Uh, one side says, well, the Marlins just got taken again. Maybe they're they're not doing as well as they could have on the return. But on the other hand, Lewis Brinson is basically their top prospect. I think you just said that. And uh, it seems like they got a fairly decent package for Christian Yelich. So I, I don't know what which side I'm on. I would surmise that Milwaukee still has plenty of farm to to basically uh, trade away if they wanted to get a pitcher or whatever. Or they there's uh, basically a philosophy that because there are so many outfielders now, you got like Yelich, you got Kane, you got Ryan Braun still. You got, uh, I, I guess, Brett Phillips and Domingo Santana. Somebody's got to be traded so that they could shore up their pitching in order to catch the Cubs in the division. Uh, yeah, they they are loaded in the outfield. And one of the the interesting things is that, you know, Diaz was their number six overall prospect, according to MLB.com's prospect pipeline. But he was a top 100 prospect. I think they had him in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. So so they've still got uh, Corey Ray, who is another outfielder who projects to be there relatively soon. Uh, he's rated in the top 100. Luis Ortiz and Brandon Woodruff are their third and fourth rated prospects. Those guys are pitching. 
Uh-huh. And I think that uh, Brandon Woodruff has actually debuted. So they, they're coming, and I think they expect to get a little bit more out of their pitching prospects like Brandon Woodruff, uh-huh. which would maybe preclude the need to go out and get one. But like you said, with their surplus of outfielders, they've got a Brett Phillips who is major league ready right now. Uh-huh. Domingo Santana probably played above his head last year in terms of of what he's going to do. And he really, really needs to hit to have a lot of value. So I think you're seeing a little bit of David Stearns not totally buying into Domingo Santana. Mm-hmm. And of course, Ryan Braun is still there. Yeah. So you think uh, if given the current lineup and the, how well I think Yellich can play uh, the outfield. I'm imagining that they still stick Kane in center field because he's obviously the best defender. Uh, he's speedy and he's got good jumps and everything. Yelich is no slouch, so I'm guessing he goes into right field and then Brian moves to left field. So that that's the way I have it in my head, and that's before we even consider their their hitting because like Braun obviously is a former MVP. You could argue whether or not he deserved it over like uh, Matt Kemp before he just, you know, fell off a cliff. But I I feel like this is a really potent lineup and it was the same lineup now with two additions that gave the Cubs fits for much of the season last year before the Cubs finally figured out, Oh yeah, we're supposed to be good. Let's pull away and win the division. So honestly, I'm more concerned with the Brewers, I'm not concerned to the point that I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, the world is over. But I'm concerned that uh, this lineup is going to give the Cubs fits much more so than the Cardinals. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of firepower in this lineup now in Milwaukee, especially with the outfield. But I do think we're going to see is the Brewers try extra hard to move Ryan Braun out of town because, frankly, mm. they don't have a good place. They don't really have a great place for him. And I don't think they're going to be as interested in moving a major league ready Brett Phillips, who's got a ton of cheap, controllable upside when they can move Ryan Braun to basically anywhere Ryan Braun wants because he's got full trade protection now. Mm-hmm. It may it may be now that the, this is the best time for that divorce that we've kind of seen coming and had talked about the last couple of years and it Mm -hmm. doesn't even need to be a nasty divorce it's just one where you know the brewers are moving in one direction and ryan braun can move another direction with his organization that he'd like to go to yeah as a wisconsin what do you think of this like i don't i i get uh kind of a vibe from you that you acknowledge that the eight brewers exist but you're not necessarily a fan but at the the same time they're in your home state and it's got to be kind of exciting to see it basically in your backyard a team that's up and coming kind of like the cubs and the astros over the past few years like as soon as they realize oh you know what we got some guys about to graduate to the majors we got you know performance that's about to you know ebb over the over the brim right and so let's now pay for a John Lester or let's now trade for a Justin Verlander or something like that. And so that's what I'm trying to say is I, I see the Brewers are trying to do this. They might not contend completely in 2018, but they're set up for beyond because of their awesome farm, because of their young hitters that are up and coming, and because now they ha- basically have Lorenzo Cain and Christian Yelich for the foreseeable future. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're on mirrored five-year deals at this point with Yelich having five years of control left and Kane agreeing to five years for $80 million. So in that sense, you know, those those are two of their outfielders for better or worse for the next five years. Mm-hmm. As far as the Brewers being in my backyard, one of the things I get the sense of is there's some palpable excitement around them again. You know, they they saw that the Brewers pushed it into the last weekend, finishing a game out of a playoff spot. And obviously you add Yelich who makes any outfield better and you add Lorenzo Cain who has come full circle after debuting with the Brewers in 2010 before being a part of that Granke trade. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some real palpable excitement 
with the Brewers again. Personally, it may be sacrilege to say it, but I think I hate the Brewers more than I hate the Cardinals as a Cubs fan, only (laughs) only because I do live here. And frankly, when the when the Cubs are bad and the Brewers were better than the Cubs, it's insufferable to live in this state with Brewer fans. <laughs> oh, I, I guess I could see how you feel like over here. Uh, even though we're not in the same league, I have to deal with White Sox fans all the time. And, you know, I don't hate the White Sox. I think it's awesome that they took, for example, Eloy Jimenez away, and then they traded for a bunch of other prospects after the Chris Sale trade. And they're on the up and up as well. So I think it's really cool to have another team in close proximity to the Cubs that's about to be good. And I think that's good for baseball is to have as many teams as possible being good, right? Yeah, the White Sox have been killing it in trades. I I feel like they've won in terms of value pretty much every trade they've made, even against the Cubs, getting back a Cease and a Jimenez for – Jose Quintana, and the Cubs Cubs did very well in that trade. You got one of the better pitchers, more consistent pitchers in baseball for three and a half years, and you give them up for prospects. At the same time, you know, if Eloy turns out to be, you know, anything approaching his potential, and even if Cease doesn't necessarily pan out as a starter, he's probably a pretty good high-leverage reliever. You know, the White Sox did very well. And the yeah. Cubs got what they needed for their competitive window. But, man, you look at, you know, every move the White Sox have made, they have gotten real, solid, legitimate talent back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is what happens when you allow a good baseball mind to work his magic. And uh, as long as you're not hindered by payroll or anything, crazy like that from ownership or some other, you know, like the Mets are basically strangled by their Ponzi scheme thing and their owners being just, I don't even know what the word is. Like it's so weird what they're trying to do in, in New York right now. But uh, when you allow a good baseball mind to do what they, they want to do, like with Theo Epstein and, uh, and the guys in Houston and whatnot, like you see really cool things happen. And I, I think I, I just feel like I kind of scared about Milwaukee, not so much this coming year, but in the future. And with baseball, like nobody ever really stays still. So you kind of uh, anticipate that at some point the Cubs window is going to shut down. It's not going to happen for a few years, but it's going to shut down. And then another window for another team is going to reopen. And that happened with the Cardinals for for a while. That's going to happen with the Brewers. And I think for the time being, the Cubs window is jammed open. But uh, now you have a team in the Brewers that's like basically going for it. They're going all in. And now you're just kind of afraid, well, what if they sign a Jake Arrieta? What if they sign Alex Cobb? What if they sign Hugh Darvish, which the Cubs definitely wanted, right? So it's kind of – it's kind of one of those things that sticks in your mind, even though you know that the Cubs are probably still going to relatively easily win the division. Yeah, I think one of the things we saw last year with the Brewers is a lot of their guys overproduced. And like I alluded to earlier with not buying into Domingo Santana, I think they definitely sought out some more stable and predictable production in Kane and Yelich, and they definitely got it. The other side of that is Lorenzo Cain's going to be 32 here very soon. Mm-hmm. So they didn't get – the Brewers didn't sign the best of Lorenzo Cain. Is he still going to be a good player? Yeah, probably. Is he going to be a six-and-a-half win player like he was in 2015? Probably not. I mean, he's he's only been worth six and a, roughly six-and-a-half wins the last two years after having that really great 2015 season. So mm-hmm. we'll see, but I I think they definitely got an older Lorenzo Kane who's never been a big power guy, and his he doesn't take as many walks as some in their lineups, but he's a bat on ball guy, and that's yeah. something that the Brewers sorely needed because they strike out a ton. Yeah, 
I guess uh, most of MLB does strike out a ton these days, which uh, goes into, you know, trying to fix the game to make more balls go in play instead of just seeing whiffs all the time. But uh, that's another story. With Lorenzo Cain, I feel like if he ages, kind of like Ricky Henderson, he seems like somebody who takes care of himself, and I don't know that the speed is just going to up and disappear, then maybe he just gets on base just by being fast, like a lot of uh, infield singles, a lot of, like, you know, bunt hits and whatnot. So it's not too bad. Like, you don't need him to be a power guy, but you do need him to be a great defender, which he has been, and you need him to steal a few bases, which he has done as well. So it all in all, I feel like it's a good signing. I would actually kind of argue that he is underpaid with that five – uh, the rumored five mil, uh, five-year, eighty million dollar deal. Uh, yeah, I would think that going into the offseason, Lorenzo Kane probably expected to get a bigger contract. But mm-hmm. I think we're seeing kind of what happened with the market this year, where you know nobody has really like th- this is the biggest contract in terms of dollars of the offseason so far which is actually incredible to me that we're seeing $80 million in the last week of January, and that's setting the pace for the biggest contract. I mean, we've still got you Darvish and Jake Garrietta and JD Martinez is also available. So, so I think we're going to see a few guys clear that $80 million threshold, but I think we're seeing an adjustment to teams and the luxury tax. Yeah. And the Brewers the Brewers were nowhere close to it, so they can absorb that $16 million relatively easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're, they're still a bunch down. Like, they could literally sign all three uh, all three big-name pitchers and not even sniff the luxury tax at this point, right? Well, right, but there's still the revenue consideration. Yeah, that's the true. Brewers, <laughs> the, Brewers, the Brewers just aren't a revenue-generating club, like, like some of the other teams in baseball, like the Cubs, like the Yankees, like, you know, even the Cardinals who for some weird and wonderful reason, get a competitive balance pick, but I'll get off my soapbox. (laughs) We've talked a lot about, you know, the Cubs TV deals and how they're not great and how, when they get their new TV deal, revenue is going to explode. The Brewers are kind of trapped in a not great TV deal themselves. Mm-hmm. And then combined with the rebuild the last few years, not drawing quite as many people into the ballpark on a consistent basis, even though Brewer fans do show up, you know, it's hard to show up for a team that's not very good by design. Yeah. So their ability to go out and to buy a John Lester, like the Cubs did at the, at the pinnacle of their rebuild. And then to, to parlay that with a guy like Jason Hayward or a contract of that nature is is a lot more severely limited for a team like the Milwaukee Brewers. So they really do need to develop their pitching and hope the pitching that they have developed works out. Yeah. At the same time, like we just discussed earlier, they do have a surplus of outfielders that they could potentially trade for pitching. It's just a matter of who actually has the pitchers that they want and wants to absorb those outfielders. Uh, I don't know that, like, the Giants are obviously trying to get back to to contention. They just traded for Andrew McCutcheon, which was kind of surprising, but at the same time, not really, because the Pirates are trying to rebuild. And so that's another patsy that you potentially think the Cubs can step on this, this uh, coming season. The Reds are kind of in the toilet as well. So now it's a... Th- it's another three-team race. I think uh, with the Cardinals getting Ozuna and uh, just typical Cardinals devil magic, it's going to be a three-horse race. And I still think the Cubs have enough horsepower to just rise above the rest. But it, it's not as comfortable thinking that as I used to, like, a few hours ago. <laughs> you know, I, I really don't know how much has actually changed because the Cubs aren't done. Right. With, with Jake Arrieta still out there, with Hugh Darvish still out there, with Alex Cobb still out there, even if we were to pencil in an Alex Cobb in Milwaukee, if the Cubs were to add Hugh Darvish 
the Cubs rotation one through five is head and shoulders better than the Milwaukee Brewers rotation. Yeah. And I'll, I'll take pitching every day of the week. I mean, we saw the Brewers bash their way to 75 wins a lot up until 2008 when they finally made the playoffs. And then 2009 and 2010, you know, again, offense as potent as any team in the league when it was headed by Prince Fielder in his his prime and Ryan Braun, you know, emerging. But it wasn't until 2011 when they went and they added a Sean Markham and a Zach Ranke that we saw the Brewers become a viable, legitimate contender. So I don't know how much you believe in the Zach Davies of the world and yeah. and who they have, especially with Jimmy Nelson with the shoulder injury he suffered last year against the Cubs. You know, they Giovanni, right now, Giovanni Gallardo isn't actually that um, good. So that that was a kind of a weird signing <clears throat> that, that I guess someone has to eat their innings, right? Nope. Yeah, nobody was happier to see Giovanni Gallardo sign with the Brewers and Cubs fans. That, <laughs> yeah. guy, that guy is going to get lit up in a hitter's haven ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, like Miller Park is kind of a launch pad. You wouldn't think so because it looks so huge, but they just balls just fly out of there. It's crazy. And it's partly just juice ball, but there's just something about that ballpark that makes baseballs go into orbit. Could it be segue i see like depending on how much you trust bob nightingale he just says that the brewers are shopping outfielders domingo santana and brett phillips we just talked about that for a starting pitcher uh so obviously that's happening like maybe they decided perhaps we just coughed up our third round draft pick because i guess the uh brewers receive revenue sharing and there's like weird rules that I keep having to look up uh, about the CBAs for draft compensation because obviously Lorenzo Cain was a uh, qualifying offer free agent. He rejected it. So now the Royals get a draft pick and the Brewers have to forfeit, not their first round pick, but their third round pick. And uh, I'm guessing they don't want to cough up their fourth or fifth round pick by, by signing uh, QO free agents anymore, like Arietta or cup. And, uh, I'm not actually sure that they would be in the running for you, Darvish, because oftentimes you see like the big names are like L.A. or um, or even Minnesota or, of course, the Cubs. And so I feel like this is a good segue to how much is a you, Darvish, worth? And obviously, like you said, uh, he would basically complete the best uh, pitching rotation in the NL Central. You know, you Darvish is pro- if they can get you Darvish on a five-year deal at around twenty-five million per, so five years, one hundred twenty-five million dollars. Hmm. You know, going in, if we were to say that going into the off-season, I think every everybody would have been like, "Yeah, sign me up." Uh, really, it doesn't necessarily matter which of the three top pitchers. Darvish, Arietta, or Cobb that the Cubs get, their rotation will be probably the best in the division, definitely better than the Brewers. Hmm. So, like, personally, I think I would prefer you, Darvish. I think he's the best of the three right now. Um, mm-hmm. I love J.J. I love J. Arietta. It was, it was a whole lot of fun watching him pitch. I was actually at his first start as a Chicago Cub on July 30th. 2013 in the second half of a doubleheader against the Brewers. Mm-hmm. What he's done with the Cubs is undeniable in the way he turned his career around, but man, you look at last year and the way it's easier for him to, it's easy for him to lose his mechanics and lose control. And that downturn in velocity was very real. Yeah. There's some, so I'm a little nervous about bringing back Jake Arrieta for four or five years because Jake's a stuff guy. He's a total stuff guy. And I know he's got fewer miles on his arm than you Darvish does when you combine you Darvish's time in the major leagues and in Japan. But we saw a legitimate 
marked decline from Jake Arrieta for a good chunk of last season. And Mm -hmm. that's scary to think about in two, three, four years. Well, what's that guy going to be? Yeah. Uh, The thing that kind of uh, intrigues me about you, Darvish, other than the financial thing, like, Ultimately, all teams, like what, however you think about labor issues and whatnot, they do care about the logistics. And the logistics are, well, if the Cubs want to maintain their farm system, they need draft picks. They need pool money. So if they don't, if they can avoid uh, forfeiting a draft pick, then they pro- probably want to avoid Alex Cobb. And if they want an extra draft pick, they want to avoid uh, Jake Arrieta. Hugh Darvish doesn't cost him a draft because he was traded mid-season. So my businessman brain is thinking about this, and my kind of uh, I support labor and I think baseball players should be paid what they're worth things says that Hugh Darvish should get at least $25 million a year and maybe get that five-year deal with a six-year option similarly to what uh, John Lester ultimately got. No, I think when we talk about what players are getting paid, I think it was you and I that had a conversation about Jason Hayward's contract on Twitter. Yeah. You know, when when he said that he earned his contract, and in some ways he did, but the Cubs aren't going to pay you, Darvish, a lifetime achievement award for being awesome in his you know, five years with the Texas Rangers. That's right. not going to happen. The Cubs are going to pay you Darvish for what they think they that he can give them over the next five years. You know, the Cubs paid Jason Hayward all that money because he was a 26-year-old free agent. You know, that's a prime of your career. Mm-hmm. And those guys don't happen very often. That's actually something Theo Epstein talked about when he took the Cubs job. You know, right. You try to get those prime free agents in positions of need. And whether you agree with what Jason Hayward's getting paid based on what he's produced – he has filled a position of need for the Cubs in outfield defense, which was horrible in 2015 and exposed in the playoffs. Jason Hayward's really filled that gap. Yeah. And I think that has a lot of value. Like, obviously you hope that this coming, uh, coming spring heat and early on in the season, he shows that, you know, those mental cobwebs are gone. He is as awesome as he used to be because he's still so young and like, it's just so weird to see a baseball player fall off a cliff like that, but it obviously does happen. And then sometimes you can't get back up again, but I don't think that's the case for him. He like works so hard and he's just so naturally talented that you kind of expect like in your piece for our blog that he might just bounce back and be one of those quote breakout uh, players for the Cubs, even though he's already broken out. That's why he earned that $184 million contract in the first place, because he was supposed to be awesome. Yeah, um, as I wrote in my piece last weekend, talent and and effort, essentially, I'll bet on that every day of the week. And Jason Hayward's given effort in spades and has worked exceptionally hard to live up to his contract, even though his numbers at the plate haven't necessarily done so. In projecting that at Hugh Darvish's level, he's, here's a guy who's entering his age 32 season. Mm-hmm. So, so he'll turn 32 towards the end of the season in August. Um, so that's a guy that, you know, as a, as a front office, the Cubs need to look at what can you Darvish be over the next five years or so, if that's how long they're willing to go or four. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and you Darvish hasn't really seen the, the stuff declines that we've seen with Jake Arietta and, you know, Alex Cobb, having recently come back from Tommy John surgery, he he looked a lot better in the second half of last season, but there are some peripherals that don't necessarily look great for an Alex Cobb. Right. Like, uh, you you had his own Tommy John surgery, but after he came back, he was pretty awesome still. So, like, obviously, like even if there was a decline, you don't notice as, as much, and I'm hoping that's a good sign of things to come, but you know, I'm not I'm not as smart as their scouts and their an- analysts, so I'm just hoping that if they are so gung ho about signing another pitcher, they don't want Mike Montgomery to be the putative uh, fifth starter. Maybe he'll be the sixth starter if they do the six man rotation later on in the summer. But 
Yeah, it makes sense to shore up that uh, for more depth because if you have a U Darvish, then you always have Mike Montgomery on the back burner, and then you shift everybody down a notch so that, you know, if it was just Mike Montgomery as a fifth starter and then, say, John Lester gets hurt, now you have to rely on, say, Eddie Butler or something, and that's just not fun to think about. Well, color me as somebody who still believes in Eddie Butler. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe not as a, a mid-rotation guy, but... Definitely a fifth guy. Well, as far as AAA depth, Eddie Butler is kind of a luxury. And, you know, just getting him out of Colorado and maybe reworking on some of his confidence and helping him bring that not walking guys thing that he did so well in Iowa to the big league level, he can be a decent fifth starter. You know, we're talking about declines. You Darvish, stuff-wise, velocity-wise, there doesn't appear to be any real decline in him. You know, from the time he debuted in 2012, you know, he was sitting at about 94 on his fastball. Last year he sat around 95. So he's actually added a tick over the last five years. You know, stuff-wise looks as good as ever. You know, I know people saw the World Series, and that scares them to death. But, man, that's a mighty small blip on the on the overall picture of who you Darvish is. And it's not like the uh, Astros were terrible. They, they're they a very good, potent uh, offensive team, so it wasn't exactly surprising to see them break out, even against a, a U Darvish, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you got to remember, up until August, you know, U Darvish was a ranger. He was in their division. It's not like they'd never seen him before. So if he was even the least bit tipping or he was a little bit flat or he was a little bit off, you know, whatever happened to you, Darvish, in the World Series, it's not like the Astros were in that series flying blind on who in the world is you, Darvish, either. They had faced him enough that that they knew of him. Through the good times and the bad times, we stood beside you Let's say the Cubs are able to side you, Darvish, within the next 24 hours. Uh, that probably swings the pendulum back towards them being able to win 95 games. I don't think either the Cardinals or Brewers are projected to win more than high 80s. And so that, it's still a comfortable bubble for projection. Obviously, games aren't played on paper, but uh, on paper, you should feel pretty good about the Cubs. Now, if we're talking about their roster, other than – Let's just assume that uh, a U Darvish type pitcher is on the rotation. Then the only thing left for them to figure out is who is the backup outfielder and who, uh, I, I guess uh, that that is pretty much it, right? Who is the backup outfielder and who is the backup catcher at this point? Uh, yeah, I think, I don't think we're done with the Cubs adding pieces. You know, John Jay is still available and I could see them bringing him back on an inexpensive contract. Uh, Hugh Darvish is obviously a big fish. Uh, Jake Arrieta could be back. Yeah. Uh, Alex Cobb is still a potential addition. Um, has anybody signed Alex Avila? I'd assume no, because nobody has signed anybody this offseason. No. So I did hear that the Nationals were interested in JT Real Muto, but obviously they'd have to trade for him. So that's out of the question for the Cubs. They'd have to give up way too much to get a JT Real Muto, and he's obviously a starting caliber catcher. I think Alex Avila is also a starting ca- uh, caliber catcher, uh, and so I don't know that he'd enjoy being relegated to, to a backup role. But then again, I don't I don't know him, and I don't know what his agent or he wants uh, for the rest of his career. My original thought was that the Cubs would just bring back Rene Rivera, but then lo and behold, he signed with the Angels. And then the other thing was, well, maybe they're just happy, you know, playing Victor Caratini behind the play uh, behind Wilson. And then they decided to sign Chris Jimenez to a a uh, minor league deal. And the conspiracy theory out there is because Chris Jimenez and 
you Darvish are buddy buddy. That's maybe that's like the David Ross play where you sign a David Ross to placate uh, John Lester with a personal catcher. So you know. Yeah, that that might be. It's like if you want a backup catcher, you want somebody who's glove first because he's not going to play as much as Wilson, who just you know he, he has so much energy, he just wants to play every day. Like obviously he can't because catching is murder on your calves and knees and quads and everything. But uh, yeah, I, I don't see that the backup catcher needs to play as much as say uh, David Ross did. No, I don't. I don't know what. Alex Avila's thoughts are. I know he wanted to be a starter. I thought I read somewhere at the beginning of the offseason that he would consider going to a backup or a platoon role on the right team. I think that Alex Avila is a tremendous fit for the Cubs as far as a a team who has a right-handed catcher who needs a solid veteran backup, who's a good defender, Mm-hmm. You know, all the things that you want in a backup catcher, Alex Avila is, he'd be a fine starter. He's a tremendous luxury as a backup. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chris Jimenez thing, I filed that under, it can't hurt. Uh, I know a lot of people have made the the comparison to John Lester and David Ross, but, you know, in that situation, the cart came before the horse. The Cubs had signed John Lester and then went out and got David Ross they didn't necessarily dangle the treat in front of John Lester by signing David Ross first. Mm-hmm. If if Chris Jimenez is a guy that ultimately talks you Darvish into signing with the Cubs, you know I think that's great. Um, if they signed Jimenez because they've gone far enough down the road with you Darvish that they feel pretty good about closing that deal, then yeah, it's great. The things about Jimenez, I think, are the exact same things that the Cubs liked about David Ross when they signed him, and that he's a, a veteran presence, and you know he he handles the bat okay. He he does a pretty nice job framing pitches. I think he brings all the things in veteran leader that the Cubs are actually looking for since David Ross retired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, they're also working with Wilson on framing because they realized that that was his uh, Achilles heel, really. And so another good framer, like, I'm looking this up so that I don't uh, insult the guy, but according to baseball reference, I'm supposed to pronounce it Jimenez. So it's a soft G. So that that made me feel a little better knowing that, uh, you know, we were going back and forth between Jimenez and Jimenez, but it is Jimenez. And, uh, yeah, he's like 35 years old uh, this year, and he's going to be a veteran backstop behind Wilson who can kind of mentor him the way Miguel Montero and David Ross did and maybe help him improve that framing. So I'm guessing that uh, most of the work this spring will be just improving, like, his receiving skills because, obviously, he's a great defender. Like, he he holds – he controls the running game extremely well, but uh, it's just stealing strikes here or there, which I, I know we've uh, uh, talked about ad nauseum. There, unfortunately, can't be robot umps right now because the technology's not there, but we sure would like that. But uh, until that happens, then Wilson needs to be able to steal strikes for, like, you know, nippers like uh, John Lester and Kyle Hendricks who rely on pinpoint control and trying to live off the corners. Yeah, I think we saw Wilson Contreras make some pretty nice strides in that last season, and he's a young guy. He's still a very raw catcher. I, I don't think people realize just how raw in terms of total innings as a professional he's caught. Guys played all over the diamond as a professional baseball player, but really hasn't been a full-time, everyday, your job is to be a catcher kind of guy since you know that long. So he's still very much learning the position, and we're seeing such tremendous growth in him in him over the you know the last few years since 2015 when he emerged as probably the best catching prospect in baseball to 2016 and now where he's you know arguably a top five catcher in baseball all told, and you know could be emerging very soon as the best catcher in baseball. The beauty and the history in this cathedral. The sky so blue against the grass so green Like time stood still forever 
So uh, I think we can segue away from spring training. They'll come back, uh, I believe, February 14th is when the pitchers and catchers report, and then the next day is their uh, first workout. But uh, this winter, uh, with everything being slow as it was, we were all following Ryan Thibodeau's uh Baseball Hall of Fame tracker, and I was really hoping Edgar Martinez would get in, but I'm very happy that four people got in. Uh, so you had Vladimir Guerrero, you had Chipper Jones and Jim Tomey, who are first balloters, and then uh, Trevor Hoffman also got in. Like, we can argue about that all we want, but Trevor Hoffman racking up 612 saves or whatever it was and also pitching so well uh, throughout his career with a low ERA and low FIP, that's pretty impressive, so I feel, feel like he deserved it anyway. But at the same time, you see like a lot of guys, like Edgar just barely missed, and he's obviously deserving. Uh, I don't know if you agree with me, but I feel like he should be in there. Uh, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, like no matter what you think of their off-field exploits, they were extremely good baseball players, and they should deserve to go in, and I Having visited the Hall of Fame, I feel like they deserve a place there uh, in terms of their baseball immortality. Like, who cares what they are as a person, really? But that's just my opinion. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I looked at who got in, and I can't argue with anybody who did. I think it's long past time to put Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens into the Hall of Fame. I don't necessarily understand if you vote for Trevor Hoffman, how you cannot vote for Billy Wagner. I mean, you look at the numbers for Wagner. He was sensational for a long time. Yeah. Forget, forget the fact that the same number's not there. Um, Andrew Jones, like I can't, I can't fathom how low his vote total was. Andrew Jones was, such an incredible player for a long time. And I, I think we're, we're clouded by the end of his career where he kind of bounced around, but that run he had with the Braves was yeah. as good. And like we remember him as a defensive outfielder. The man could hit. Yeah. He could straight up hit. So I don't know how, how in the world his vote total was so low. Uh, Scott Rowland is another guy. Yeah, he was just, a great defender, and he could hit very well. Yeah. You scratch your head on what Scott Rowland – like, go look at Scott Rowland's 2011 season, and and just – he was insane. Like, there's, there are so many guys that you look at, and, and it's hard to understand how the voters came to decisions. And then you got – the guys who send in blank ballots or, you know, they, they only vote for three or four guys. Uh, Larry Walker is another one. Larry Walker is a hall of famer. Yeah, he How should he? be. I think he's going to make a late run, but I don't know if he'll get to the 75%. He only has two years left. And that's kind of a, that's kind of scary for a guy like him who, like, I agree with you. Like when you look at his away from cores numbers, it's way up there. Like he was a, almost a 300, 400, 500 hitter on the road away from course. So yeah, Larry Walker was great. Capital G great before he was a Rocky. And then, you know, hitting hitting in cores just made the numbers unimaginable. And then you top that off with Larry Walker was a tremendous defensive outfielder. Like he was the complete package. So how, how Larry Walker's not getting votes. I don't. I will never understand the Hall of Fame thing. It continues to perplex me, and it's upsetting as a baseball fan because there are so many great players who deserve to be in. And you know, we've got a generation of older voters kind of dictating what we're going to remember about an era where, you know, where like we grew up, uh-huh. you know, what the '90s were, and you know, the early 2000s. Yeah, it's, it's disappointing, but. You look, you know, I just, I can't explain, like, some of these guys are Hall of Famers, and it's not really debatable. Yeah, I think it has to do with individual philosophies, like, for a guy like Schilling, who was a very good pitcher, 
their issue with him is that <laughs> basically he's a racist a-hole and he wrote stuff about the media. And I, I feel like if you're doing that, it, it's kind of hypocritical. Like you don't really use the character clause until it's convenient. Right. And you're using the same thing against bonds and Clemens, like, like bonds has that whole thing where he, 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 it, it's, I don't know if it's an allegation anymore or if there's hard evidence, but the domestic violence thing has taken a big, uh, it's taken a forefront in baseball. And I think it's a serious deal. Like you should never beat anybody. Like it's, it's just not cool. But at the same time, if you're talking about the baseball hall of fame and the player who is great at baseball, you have to vote that guy in. Like, you know, Ty Cobb was a racist and he kept spiking people. You know, there are a bunch of racists and probably other juicers in the Hall of Fame. So to keep out one of the best pitchers of all time in Roger Clemens and one of the best hitters of all time in Barry Bonds just doesn't seem right to me, no matter what your personal feelings are. And that's how I'm going to frame it. Like, I don't necessarily want to, you know, be buddies with Barry Bonds because we've heard stories of how terrible of a person or maybe an abrasive teammate or whatever, but he was an excellent baseball player and you would want him on your team because he could produce. Yeah. I mean, Kurt Schilling is another guy you mentioned that guy. I think the bloody sock game was probably one of the all time moments of baseball in, you know, in my 32 plus years of being alive. Like that's, that's an incredible thing. And, and that's just not, you know, a guy being, you know, all-time tough and doing something great as a one-off thing. Kurt Schilling was a really, really great pitcher. Yeah. Uh, Mike, Mike Mussina, like that guy pitched in a in a hellacious division. And, and he produced. He produced for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, you know, the, I know it's convenient to to talk about character and, I know Joe Morgan wrote that that quite comical letter about yeah. you know letting steroid guys in and you know the the Hall of Fame is full of cheaters and horrible people and you know some some really bad characters but they're yeah. all pretty great baseball players and and it's not it's not supposed to be the hall of who we like. It it should be the hall of fame. It should be, you know, a display of the greatest players. I know Sammy Sosa had seven ish percent of the vote this year, so you know, he's, he's probably, probably gone next year. Or yeah, he's probably on life support and may fall off the ballot next year. But you know, we talk about Sammy going from, you know, what he was to a sixty home run guy in nineteen ninety eight. Sammy was a pretty good player. And is he a Hall of Famer? You know, I think I've come around. I think early on I let some emotion cause me to vote for him on my internet baseball writer's ballot. Yeah. But Sammy was a pretty good, great baseball player before 1998. He had some 2020 seasons. He had a 30-30 season in there. Sammy was a really great player. Is he a Hall of Famer? Probably not, you know, considering the era. But the man still had to hit the ball. He still had to have the the you know, it's not all steroids that made him a 60 home run guy. Yeah. And I, I think the whole thing with steroids, like I, I forgot who it was. It might've been Buster Oney. It might've been Keith Law, but somebody said something into the tune of like in that era without positive testing, you can't really say who did or did not do anything. You could just say that they were never truly implicated so at this point, um, if you're trying to exclude certain people, like they excluded Jeff Bagwell from the ballot for a very long time, and he finally got in, deservingly enough. But, uh, you know, just saying, well, Piazza had back acne, or Jeff Bagwell looks like he was a guy who took something, uh, that's unfair to them, because now it's just guesswork, and now you're having a personal agenda on your ballot, and it doesn't make sense to me. So... Per- uh, getting back to Sosa, though, this is uh, very interesting because uh, Ben was at the Cubs convention, and for like the X 
number of years in a row, somebody asked the Sammy Sosa question, and Tom Ricketts was, again, sort of noncommittal about it. But I think he actually wants Sammy Sosa to make an apology that I don't think he has to. Yeah, I think I'm with you on the Sammy Sosa doesn't owe the Ricketts family a damn thing. Um, you know, nobody in baseball gave back the money. Like, none yeah. of the owners gave back the money that Sammy got them from ticket sales, from TV revenue. Nobody gave back the money from Mark McGuire. And, you know, we can talk about the steroids thing. I think that's a convenient, you know, it's a convenient scapegoat. But you got to remember, like, they still, like, they employed Manny Ramirez for two years. Right. And he's a guy that. He actually got tested positive, right? Twice. You know, the only link between Sosa and steroids is the New York Times report about the 2003 anonymous testing, which is a pretty vague association to it. You know, Sammy maintained he was clean. I don't think anybody really believes him. You know, what he may or may not have taken, nobody knows. Yeah, like, I I don't actually know what he has to come clean about. Like, it it, it just doesn't make, make sense to me. Like, he is probably the reason I am a Cubs fan and a baseball fan, because he and Mark McGuire, uh, I, I don't think it's any embellishment. They saved baseball a- after the that last player strike. And, you know, we're probably going to see another player strike soon, whether it will work or not. We'll, we it, It's several years in the, in the future. But uh, back then, like, baseball was kind of waning, and then it started getting exciting again because everybody dug the long ball, and they were just blasting baseballs all over the place. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. I, I feel like that deserves some recognition and to not – it, it, it seems petty, man. It, it's just so so petty for them to keep Sammy away from a team with a fan base that I'd say more than half of us still love our memories of him and the player himself. You know, I, I feel for Tom Ricketts because I know he gets it from both sides. There are the Cubs fans who, you know, they love Sammy. There's the Cubs fans like me. If it weren't for WGN – and Sammy Sosa hitting balls into God knows where, yeah. I probably wouldn't be a Cubs fan. I live in Wisconsin. It's not like the Cubs were easily accessible to me. For me personally, they were more easily accessible than the Brewers as I grew up. But, I mean, they're still an out-of-town team. Hmm. So I owe a lot of my fandom to, to Sammy Sosa. But on the other side of that, you know, I think, there are Cubs fans who look at Sammy and the way he left after the 2004 season and, you know, the steroids thing and the corked bat thing. And they just look at everything that Sosa was in the last few years of his time with the Cubs. And they're just like good riddance. Huh. So yeah. in, that, in that fact, I empathize with Tom Ricketts trying to, you know, appease both sides. Like, hey, Sammy, if you come clean, we'll bring you back, which hopefully appeases the people who don't want you but would also satisfy the people who do. Yeah. On the other side of it, I don't think Sammy owes the Cubs or the Ricketts family especially anything. He didn't do anything to the Ricketts family. They didn't own the Cubs. Yeah. I would like to see Sammy back, whether it's at the Cubs convention or, you know, he throws a first pitch or he's around at games in the same way that other Cubs legends are. Sammy is every bit the Cubs legend that anybody that you can name is. From Ron Santo to Ernie Banks to Fergie Jenkins, Sammy belongs in that class because he is as accomplished a baseball player as any of them, steroids or not. Until now the story stayed the same But you changed the script so we celebrate together In the remaining time that we have left, I thought uh, we might talk a little bit because, you know, there's been rumors of de facto collusion. I don't know that that's the case. There's no hard evidence. But part of uh, what's going on between MLBPA and MLB itself is these pace of play rules. Uh, I don't know about you, but I I think I have what you might call a medium attention span. I like baseball. I like being relaxed, but I don't like 
watching guys like adjust their cups or fix their gloves uh, and having all that lull in in between pitches. So I feel like some of the pays of play rules that are being proposed by MLB, uh, both in their unilateral uh, proposal and also the compromise proposal that they tried to present to the Players Association are reasonable, especially when they're enforcing a rule that's already on the rule books. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. If we can get a pitch clock to get Pedro Baez under 35 minutes between pitches, I'm all for it. Yeah. I'm a I'm a traditionalist. I like kind of the way baseball is without the clocks, without the – you know, it's a sit down and watch a ball game type game and there's no clock to worry about and things of that nature. But at the same time, like, you know, the baseball dying narrative is probably false, but baseball's getting, like, its fan base is getting older. The the fans are yeah. getting older and it's not really drawing in younger fans. And hopefully, you know, like, we see more highlights on Twitter and more Snapchat and more Instagram and more social media and more mm-hmm. of those things selling the bigger stars. More you know, bad clips. Yeah. Yeah. I made a joke last week on Twitter about how the NFL was better at marketing Mike Trout than baseball. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> sort It's sort of true. Like I think Mike Trout got more airtime because he was at the NFC championship game last week as an Eagles fan then, you know, he gets as a baseball player. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons I was rooting so hard for the Angels to win that second wild card last year so we can see Mike Trout in the playoffs. Just so people can learn who in the world Mike Trout is. That guy's phenomenal, but nobody knows about him. Right. Uh, there's so many great young stars in baseball to market. You know, the Chris Bryants and the Bryce Harpers and the Mike Trouts and, you know, Clayton Kershaw and you know, Jose yeah. Altuve and you know, the list is so long. Uh, you know, Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge. You know, it's so There are so many great young players in Major League Baseball. Yeah, you you just want to have them put the ball in play more often to run around the bases to make exciting plays. But you also want to see more of that in a row than your, your typical football game, I think. Like, there's so much standing around and adjusting and mound visits and whatnot. I think trying to limit it too much is probably not uh, in the spirit of the game as we know it. But at the same time, like you said, like we got to draw in younger fans. Otherwise baseball's not going to survive. And uh, yeah. that that's not like, you know, now because now baseball's just full of money, but in a few years when you, we hit our fifties and there are no new fans, like we can't sustain the sport forever. And now uh, basically with, the players' union uh, losing a little bit of leverage, and might they may may lose more in the future when they n- negotiate the new CBA. They can't get that leverage back as easily as you would think. Uh, it it's going to be harder and harder for them to to you know negotiate and whatnot. And so I feel like they need to at least compromise on some of these pace of play rules so that they could get a little bit of what they want back. So, you know, MLB, you know what? You don't have to do this unilaterally. We will agree to some of this because we understand that we have to bring in younger fans, but at the same time, maybe you guys should like, you know, pay us more or yeah. Like ultimately you would want baseball players to be paid what they deserve, but uh, their market is so weird because of, the fact that you only have 30 teams, maybe 32 if they expand. So the market is kind of closed. So they determine their own market. So what is fair? And that there, there's a bunch of things that we probably don't have time to get into, but this is just stuff on my mind probably for next time. But ultimately, I think a 20-second pitch clock, uh, especially with bases empty, is a good idea. I think that limiting mountain visits and whatnot is a good idea. I think uh, – Teams are smart enough to understand how to give each other signs without them being stolen anymore. And so there, there's things that they could do to adapt. There's uh, ways to uh, maybe make the bullpen mound the same as the mound on the, on the field so that they don't have to get the field of the mound during uh, reliever changes and reliever warm-ups. 
and just save a few seconds here and there, that turns into minutes and that gets the game under three hours and then everybody's happy. And I, I think that's, that's a good idea. And there's probably things they could do too, like, you know, put picture in picture for the commercials, like during a replay, like you don't have to stay with the replay like 6,000 times while they're trying to figure it out. You could just play a commercial and then show like the replay, like the definitive replay after they come back. I, I, I feel like that's something that they have to adapt with. Yeah, I think I think we're seeing the or have seen the NFL over a period of time try to you know tailor the the way they present replay to the TV audience. I'm not even so sure that you know I I know you mentioned the bringing the game under three hours thing. I don't think that matters a whole lot. I think if the game is three hours and 10 minutes and it moves along and there's things consistently happening through throughout that three hours and 10 minutes and it's entertaining, nobody cares if the game is three hours and 10 minutes right. long. It's when the game is three hours and 10 minutes long and you got, you got the, the cup adjustments and the batting gloves getting, you know, the, the Ryan Bronze and the David Ortiz's of the world where they have to take off their gloves and put it back on and move their hair and all that nonsense that they do every <laughs> day. Right. So, it's it's that stuff you know the 20 second pitch clock that's a perfectly acceptable idea most guys aren't touching that Mm -hmm. uh it's it's that rare exception of the guy who who needs to like the pedro Baez of the world who take forever between every single pitch Mm -hmm. you know so it you're keeping the game flowing you know i think everybody understands what baseball is i think everybody understands what the game is in the pitch clock isn't to artificially shorten the game. It's to not cause it to be artificially stopped. Right. Or arbitrarily stopped. Like there are uh, players, especially pitchers who argue that they need that extra time to recover because throwing a pitch max effort is a lot of stress in the body and they need to recover so that they can throw the pitch next pitch also max effort. Right. But uh, there's the counter argument that if you force them to uh, with, with less recovery time, now they can't throw as hard, which would in, theoretically increase the number of balls that are in play, and that would generate the more more chaos that we kind of like about baseball because we never know where the ball is going to go, right? So, like that that seems to me like a good idea. Like the more balls that are in play, the more plays that are being made the more you see people move around the field, the more exciting it is. And I, that in that case, I do agree with you. Uh, I, I'll be interested to see what they decide because spring training, again, is just a couple of weeks away. Uh, they're going to try to probably finagle this into spring training games and get the players used to it. And we, one way or another, like MLB is instituting pace of play rules. So we. Uh, That's it. I'm acting the way America acts best unilaterally. That's something we'll have to look forward to, man. Yeah, I'm actually just looking forward to seeing some baseball again. Word. This off season, this off season and the hot stove was kind of a bust. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to see a. I think we're going to see a real flurry of activity between now and, you know, pitchers and catchers reporting. Cause I don't think that we're going to want to see guys not have somewhere to go when pitchers and catchers report. So I think we'll see a U Darvish and a JD Martinez and an Alex Cobb and a Jake Arrieta. We'll see some of those guys sign, you know, Hosmer Mustakis. I think yeah. we'll get some, of, I think we'll get some of that rolling as, as we get closer. So, we should be in for a, a nice little flurry of activity and then right into baseball, which after missing the last, you know, two-ish months of the regular season and pretty much all of the playoffs, I'm totally ready for again. Through the good times and the bad times, we stood beside you every day. Till now our dreams have gone unclaimed. So, uh, checking Twitter one last time to make sure before we close out that you uh, Darvish did not sign with the Brewers. He has not. He hasn't signed with the Cubs either, obviously, but uh, we'll get there. And hopefully by the time this thing drops, uh, you guys will have some good news, RE the Cubs. So, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for help, helping out again with the Dreamcast. Uh, this is Andy. You can find him on Twitter at 
behind underscore the underscore Ivy. Yep, and uh, I assume that you'll have some uh, preview blogs like you always do right before opening day, so we're looking forward to that. Yeah, I haven't been able to research them because none of the free agent hot stove trades that usually go down in December are done, so <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard to develop what I'm going to write about for a preview, you know, the the weeks leading in and start thinking about where teams are going to fall because, you know, there's so much left to be done. So it should be really interesting. And those first couple of weeks of spring are going to tell us a whole lot about, you know, the Cardinals and the Brewers and, you know, maybe not so about the Reds and the Pirates. Yeah. And uh, so you can follow the official World Series Dreaming Twitter at WSDreaming underscore Cubs. Uh, Ben will probably be back next time. Uh, He... He's been busy ever since he got married, but uh, we'll see him again. You can find me on Twitter at Cubic Snarconia. Our website is worldseriesdreaming.com, and please uh, throw mail at us at worldseriesdreaming at gmail.com. You can rate this podcast on iTunes and, you know, share with your friends. Write in. Tell us we suck. Tell us you think we're great. Whatever works. We just need ratings. Uh, Let's see. Oh, yeah, we should probably thank Randall Sanders for the final out call by Pat Hughes and also uh, Rich Deanna for our theme song. Any last words, sir? No, it's great to be back, and hopefully next time I do this, we're talking about you, Darvish, or, <laughs> at, least, yeah. or at least Alex Cobb. Yeah. Are you are you uh, actually working now? Like, the government sort of ended their shutdown temporarily, right? Uh, Yes. I, okay. I did go back to work on Tuesday, and we'll see how it goes until February 8th, the next time they shut it down. All right. Well, you know, in the meantime, please continue making money, and thank you for your service, sir. And uh, for the rest of you, thank you for listening, and go Cubs. It was more than just a game.